Regardless of the circumstances, leadership transitions are perhaps the most destabilizing events in the trajectory of any nonprofit. It's actually one of the reasons I dedicate an entire chapter to the topic in my upcoming book. I stole the chapter title from an old Groucho Marx song, Hello, I Must Be Going. Typically, you're not just talking about the person who keeps the trains running on time. You're talking about a leader, an advocate, an evangelist, for a cause, a hospital, a school, the person who represents the organization publicly. Sometimes the circumstances are unflattering. Sometimes a great person finds a greater platform. Sometimes there are folks who are just running out the clock with retirement close at hand. And we know that this latter situation is happening more and more. Are organizations ready? How do they get ready? Why do we see so few internal promotions? And what about boards? Do they understand that during a leadership transition, they have to be as strong and effective as they can possibly be, and that candidates are actually interviewing them? Remember, the average tenure for a nonprofit ED is a limited number of years. So you might not think that this conversation is for you, but I encourage you to think again. So many questions. Today we are joined by an expert. I'll ask, and he'll answer. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. If you want to get the answers, it's always good to talk to the person who write, writes the book on the topic. Better still, get the guy who wrote a few. Don Tebby is an expert in leadership transition and the author of a couple of books. Chief Executive Transitions, How to Hire and Support a Nonprofit CEO, and also the Nonprofit CEO Succession Roadmap, your guide for the journey to life's next chapter. He's the go-to person on this topic and has led workshops for thousands of nonprofit executives facing retirement and turning over the reins to the next generation. He was a co-founder of an executive search firm that became a natural, national leader on executive transitions and succession. He's helped hundreds of organizations find, interview, and hire new leaders. What I also like about Don is that he's clear about his areas of passion, social justice and equity, better lives for disadvantaged kids and youth, affordable housing, food security, and fuller lives for people with developmental disabilities. Hey, Don, it's very nice to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Huge fan of your work. Likewise. So, Don, let's talk about trends in leadership transition in the nonprofit sector. Can you help my listeners to contextualize the con conversation? What's coming down the pike for nonprofits? Well, I think the biggest thing, you know, in my area of work is the number of leadership transitions that are, are taking place and are going to be taking place. Um, you know, transitions happen for a variety of reasons, but it, uh, research shows that about seven to nine percent of physicians turn over um, annually. And that that's maybe a little bit dated information. Uh, some folks are seeing that, that 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 actually the trend in transitions or the or the, that trend is increasing because of a number of executives who postponed uh, retirement uh, during the recession and the recovery, um, and uh, just the, the the age wave. I mean, transitions happen for a variety of reasons. We we know that uh, you, know, you know executives leave their job to take a new role or, or you know, transitions occur organically like that. But a lot of them are driven uh, by the uh, age wave of nonprofit leaders that uh, 
you know, this data shows that uh, majority of executives are over age 50 and a huge number of them are over age 60. And, um, uh, you know, so it's inevitable. And I think that's the, that's beyond the trends. The, I think the biggest mistake that a lot of organizations make is that they live in a state of denial about uh, transitions that, um, you know, it's, it's one thing, you know, to cite the statistics, but it's quite another thing just to kind of grasp the fact that every career, every job, every career um, ends in a transition eventually. Right. It's just a matter of when, how, and how well managed. It's completely true, Don. And I want to say, too, that, you know, as I said earlier, it, you know, it's not a surprise. Like, you know, some, yes, maybe some nonprofit CEOs stay in their jobs 10, 20 more years. But um, my guess is that that, um, that that trend will change and your board and your senior leadership always have to be thinking about succession planning. Sadly, however, of course, they love to talk about it using bus metaphors. You know, the old, let's talk about what happens if Joan gets hit by a bus. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and they go into executive session. They have that conversation. They spend about 10 or 15 minutes on it. And they feel like, okay, we've done some succession planning. We can move on. We've talked about what happens if Joan gets hit by a bus. And now let's go on to something else. So I think people, I think boards can really fool themselves into believing that they're having a conversation about that when they're actually really not. Well, that's, that, yeah, it, that's it exactly. And the fact of the matter is that they don't write it down. Um, you know, the data out there shows that somewhere between 17% to 33% of nonprofits have an actual written succession policy. And so that means, you know, two-thirds of the organizations, at least two-thirds of the organizations don't have one. So while they may have had some discussions about it, uh, you know, if the, if the, you know, if the executive were, for some reason or other, uh, they are not available, uh, or, or gets hit by a bus. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> or runs off to Tahiti with the love of their life. There you uh, go. And, but, you know, they're left in the lurch because nobody's written this down. It's like, you know, they kind of go back and maybe they have to, you know, maybe somebody sort of remembers it. But I think that's the thing that they're really, you know, there's there's great tools out there online that organizations can you know, put this, they really should be putting two things in place uh, to document that those conversations. Number one is a board adopted succession policy that covers how uh, organizations would, how the board would deal with um, an executive absence under different scenarios. Um, and we can go into those if you want, but, uh, you know, but the second document is uh, a backup plan, an executive backup plan or emergency right. backup plan that really details out you know, first of all, it designates a backup uh, within the organization, or if it's a small organization, where they would turn to for outside help um, if they if they needed somebody to come in as an interim, and then details out what are the key duties that were, are required to maintain business as usual. So those really the, and those tools are readily available. If you just Google, you know, nonprofit succession uh, policy, you'll find a ton of tools out there. So what I'd like to suggest is that um, often on my blog, when I when I post these podcasts, we put episode notes and we include links. And so um, maybe you and I will talk offline about a couple of links that you find particularly valuable that we can add so um, folks know that those resources exist. Um, great. Um, so let's talk about um, what would you say is the single biggest mistake 
that boards make in managing transitions. So we've talked a little bit about succession planning, but now let's assume um, the executive has indicated that they are going to transition out. What's the biggest mistake that boards make? And you could, there's probably several of them. So I, I could give you the opportunity to give me more than one if you like. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm going to need to take you up on that because I think there are a number of them that uh, are kind of in combination. We've already talked about the, the, the topmost mistake, and that's living in denial about leadership succession. Um, I think the second one is really failing to recognize the challenges of an executive transition. I, you know, I've worked on 117 transitions over the past 24 years, and in, you know, in every one of those, the board said to me afterwards, my God, we had no idea how complicated uh, the executive job was or how complicated it was to manage the transition. And so I think that's the, you know, a, a number one. The, can I just give you a couple others real briefly? Yes, you may, Don. Okay. You you have the floor. All right, great. So I think the third one I in kind of my priority list would be reacting, what I call reacting instead of proacting. Um, they uh, react because the executive doesn't inform the board soon enough, and so they panic, and they, they don't have a succession policy in place. They don't see it as inevitable, and so they, you know, go into panic mode and rush through the process. Um Another one I think is, and probably I'd say these two are kind of closely tied. One is not making the job doable for the successor. Um, a lot of these executives have been in place a long time, and you know the the job and the organization has grown up around them. And yes. sometimes that job is idiosyncratic uh, because it's based on that particular person's interest, or you know for. Uh, economy reasons, the executive may be filling a key hole in the management team. Uh, so you pluck that person out, and you're, you know, you've not only got two, you've got not only you've got an executive hole, you've got uh, another, you know, important leadership hole in the organization. Can I stop you there? I'm, sure. I'm curious about that. Uh, tease that out for me a little bit more about the um, making the job doable for the successor. So you're suggesting that it's possible that the that the executive director has taken on a bigger piece of the puzzle um or is is that the only is that the only i'm curious about what you mean when you say um, doable like uh, some people use the phrase like oh my goodness the new person is going to have big shoes to fill but i don't think that's exactly what you mean is it no, no, I think it's really my recommendation is that that boards, you know, when they're confronted with a transition, they sit down and and basically do three things with the, with the job. Just first of all, don't dust off the job description, kind of tune it up a little bit and go out and run with it. But really go through a, a, you know, a thoughtful process. And it doesn't have to take a lot of time, but a really thoughtful process of um, refitting and recalibrating and redrafting uh, or unpack refit and recalibrate the the job unpack first of all unpack what's in there and get rid of the stuff that no really that doesn't really belong in there any longer that you know duties that should have been delegated or you know it's something the executive's doing because they have a certain knack for it but it doesn't really belong in the ceo's job description so unpack refit um you know refitting the job getting it down to what's really uh what really belongs there and then uh recalibrate is by is taking a look at the you know your strategic plan or your strategic direction for the organization, and really taking a look at and answering really the key question is what are our current leadership needs for the organization, and what are our future leadership needs? So you talk about taking shortcuts. I the biggest shortcut pet peeve I have 
is driving through the process as quickly as possible. And I want you to help. A <laughs> Here it is. Hiring the best of a mediocre candidate pool and persuading yourselves that this leading mediocre candidate is actually really good. How can you, if you're faced, I want you to pretend I'm a board chair and I'm leading a search committee and I'm about to hire the best of a mediocre lot. Persuade me about, tell me what I should do and tell me how I should sell it to my board that we should go back to the drawing board. Well, I think the first thing that uh, helps in those in those situations is not just depending on the job description, but really talking about the job and action. And so one of the things that we always recommend is that, and not recommend, we absolutely insist that a board uh, dig down and identify the top five, six priorities for the first 12 to 18 months of the new executive's tenure. And that gives you that gives you something. You know, it's one thing for to kind of check all the boxes on the job description. Yes, this person has this sort of experience and so forth. But let's say fun, take fundraising for example. Okay, got a background in fundraising. Well, is that fundraising background relevant to the organization? And one of the ways you make that really relevant is to identify those top three, five, four, five, six priorities. Uh, for example, we need to, one organization I worked with. Uh, they needed to close a two hundred and twenty thousand uh, dollar gap in their revenue. Um, and so I asked them, like, okay, well, what's your game plan for that? Well, our game plan is for you, Mr. Recruiter, to go find us a great <laughs> fundraising executive. <laughs> and I said to them, well, that's fine. We, we'll we'll do that. But nobody in there, well, I didn't say this exactly, but <laughs> <laughs> nobody, no, no self-respecting uh, executive with that kind of fundraising chops is going to come in with, A, no plan, B, no committee, and not even a you know not even a shred of a, of a fundraising strategy, and so they you know they got clear that they really needed to you know you know put those pieces in place um, uh, you know and and really kind of look at that uh, that priority. And so you know you can when you have those priorities clearly in mind, it helps bring concreteness to the search process because you can you know can look at the candidates and, and ask yourself. Wow, are they going to be able to raise that two hundred twenty thousand dollars? Are they going to be able to launch this new initiative in another state or whatever it is? Um, uh, or are they going to be able to really, you know, turn around an organization that's, uh, you know, is uh, is what we would call, a, um, you know, a underperforming organization? Or what I would call a hot mess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, so it's interesting your conversation because. Um, I think sometimes um, search committees really look for people who can fundraise and or have demonstrated fundraising experience. And I am admittedly biased, but I was hired to run a hot uh, hot mess nonprofit, um, and I had no fundraising experience. However, what the search committee was able to glean about me was that I was a um, passionate really passionate about the mission and a wicked good storyteller and a relationship builder. Mm. Somehow or another, they 
they sussed that out during the interview process and took that leap of faith that I would actually be able to raise money from people. And so um, it sort of also goes to the fact that you can't, you know, the, the search committee also can't overly script saying, I need to have these elements of expertise. There's also obviously um, attributes which are completely critical uh, and, the, and the expertise, if you don't have the attrib attributes, you're never going to actually gain the expertise. Well, that you, that you, I think you make an important point there, because and it goes it, to me, it goes back to the complexity uh, of that wards face in the, in managing a transition or conducting the search, and that there, it involves a lot of conjecture. You know, two thirds of executives coming into CEO positions haven't had that held that position before, so this is new territory um, for them, and so um, and, and only. Mm, Roughly about 19, I, you know, some data I've seen that only about 19 uh, of nonprofits, 19 percent of nonprofit CEOs go on to another CEO position. So you can't rely on, you know, <laughs> comparable, uh, you know, experience. And so there's a lot of conjecture uh, involved. Yes. So I think your board was, you know, that board that hired you was was quite smart in being able to kind of make, you know, connect those dots because there's a lot of dot connecting. And well, and it's it's about intuition too, isn't it? I think it's just about. And also, every one of those board members is a key stakeholder, and they need to believe that they can follow the person they're interviewing, right? Absolutely. I think that's just, yep. just, you know, can I follow this person? Do, when I, you know, when I up my uh, annual gift next year, do I feel like this person is going to manage it well and invest it wisely in the service of our mission? I think those are the kinds of questions boards really have to ask. Um, I want to uh, I want to move on a little bit, um, and I want to talk about... Um, I want to talk about a lot of things, actually. <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, internal candidates. I um, I work with uh, you know lots and lots of different organizations that are in some form of transition. I do I deal with a lot of new CEOs and the change management that comes with that, both at the staff and the board level. Um, uh, I, I think there's a, a lot of bias almost against internal candidates. Um, I've worked with a, a, a client who was the deputy director who became the executive director and is doing well. Uh, I've seen some evidence of that, but I also see equally that that's, that that's not a path that boards tend to take. Um, how do you think that boards should approach the, uh, the notion of internal candidates who apply for the job? Well, first of all, I, I, we always encourage boards to, first of all, get clear about their policy. You know, if they're facing a transition, how are they going to approach um, uh, internal candidates? And so, you know, that's, that's very tactical. That's, you know, in the, in the context of the search. But I think backing up from there is that we, the nonprofit sector, we do a pretty poor job of leader development. Um, and, and it's terribly simple. Uh, you know, there's really two things that, that, um, that organizations could do today to start building not only their, uh, you know, prospective uh, CEO candidates, but just building their bench depth. And that mm -hmm. is, um, you know, help giving people stretch assignments, uh, number one, and helping them process what they're learning out of those stretch assignments. And number two, doing what I call rounding out, uh, giving people the opportunity to uh, to you know, work. Um, you know, if they're in the program arena, work in the finance office for a while. Or um, you know, when I was, I, I was the 
in the retail business when I first got out of uh, out of uh, school. And uh, you know, one of the th- they they put me through a management training program, and what it consisted of going to a uh, a store and spending two weeks in the cash office, two weeks running the front line where the right. registers are. Uh, two weeks in receiving schlepping boxes and things like that. And so, you know, getting people those rounding out experiences. And so, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times over the years, um, you know, I counted, tried to count up one time how many candidates or how many interviews I participated in is something like 1,400, something like that um, over the years. And, you know, have these stellar, stellar people, but they've been siloed. You know, yep. they, they, they don't, they, they can't connect the dots for the board. You know, they, you know, they, they haven't been, ex, you know, exposed to fundraising, for example, or they haven't been exposed to, you know, financial management and they've, you know, spent their lives in, in programs. So, you know, two things that are terribly simple and doesn't really cost any money at all. You don't have to hire a consultant to do this. You know, it's just a matter of having the will and, uh, and, and uh, you know, putting it in place. Right. And thinking about the future of the organization and building an organization to last. And what is that what does that take in terms of the investment you need to make in your in your you know, in your stars who actually aspire to greater things or who actually see being an executive director as part of their trajectory. So yeah. it's very, very interesting. So can, we're can I can I just yeah. there's I think there's one other important point to make about uh, internal candidates and that's oftentimes, particularly when the organization is under stress. You know, we've we've seen that in around the recovery and during the recession and during the recovery, um, we had anecdotal evidence that there was actually an uptick uh, in preference for internal candidates. Um, and one of the big mistakes that a lot of organizations can make in that, uh, you know, when they look at internal candidates is that they conflate um, familiarity with the organization or they overemphasize familiarity with the organization at the expense of actual on-the-job experience that's relevant uh, to the organization. You know, there's that, that can be biased in the direction of board members who know something about the organization or have been on the board right. for a long time, or could be biased towards an internal candidate. And they kind of, um, they, they overemphasize the familiarity at the expense of actual experience. That's very interesting. We are talking with Don Tebby. He is an expert in leadership transition and the author of two books, Chief Executive Transitions, How to Hire and Support a Nonprofit CEO, as well as the Nonprofit CEO Succession Roadmap. He's a go-to person on this topic, and um, we've been learning a great deal. And I, um, the more we talked on, the more clear it is to me, the clearer it is to me, that the job, you know, giving this kind of job to a group of volunteers can be really risky business. Um, And I wanted to, um, so at the risk of leaning towards mistakes, Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to read uh, an email that I got, and I want to pretend it was written to you. Um, Because it's about... um, you make a new hire, and you're starting to, as I call it, you're starting to smell smoke, right? Mm. Maybe this is not the person. So I get this email. It says, Dear Joan, I'm really torn. Three months ago, we hired a new executive director. This comes from a board chair. Uh, I was the candidate's biggest advocate. Yes, the vote went in his favor, but it was not unanimous. I've been managing and providing oversight, and there have been signs from day one that our new ED has challenges. 
Even staff has been sending cryptic signals to me that point to trouble. We were told he was strong in finance. Now I learn that he barely knows Excel. This is a small organization. He never developed a 90-day plan, and yet I find myself defending him. Am I just covering for him uh, or justifying my own advocacy in his hire? One day I feel like he needs to go, and the next day I feel like he just needs more resources signed on the fence. So what advice do you have for that board chair, Don? Well, it's a tough call. Um, First of all, as a general principle, don't ask how it's going if you haven't said how it should be. Back to the point we were talking about earlier about having those 12 to 18 month priorities. That's going to give the executive roadmap, but it also is going to give you as a board member or board, you know, some criteria to hold the the executive against. Um, But I think the, but, you know, facing that question, I think the board's got to get really clear about, um, you know, the nature of the uh, of the challenge. I, I, I'm sorry. Back there's another point that we should probably talk about. Um, first of all, is and that's really doing a good job of onboarding the new executive. Um, you know, beyond those priorities of proper introduction to the, the organization to the community, but also a good orientation to to the organization. Right. Also, I think having honest conversations about the places where uh, they need. Where the executive needs some development, and for being willing to provide those resources to them. You know, oftentimes when boards are hiring people, they kind of get into this sort of hero mentality, and they kind of, and, you know, create the illusion uh, that they've hired a great leader, and they don't want to, you know, they don't really want to have an honest conversation with them about, and be open and have a real, genuine, uh, authentic conversation about the challenges of the job and what kind of support um, they need. So I think those are two things that boards can do at, at the uh, outset to uh, ward off this kind of situation. But you know, back to you know, advice to, for dealing with this particular situation is I think you've got to get really clear about uh, um, having honest conversation with the uh, with the executive about your perspective of what you know, you know what problems you think are are, are coming up, and create a plan to. Uh, address those and then hold the executive accountable to that uh, that plan. And I think there's also a piece here about um, humility, right? Is that the board owns the decision to make the hire and has to stand behind it with the community and the stakeholders and the donors. But you also have to be willing to really just say, you know, this did not work out. And um, and I think that boards are often very reluctant to do that because they, they clearly think there's ego involved. There's a whole sense of, oh, my goodness, well, we couldn't have another transition. That would be horrible for the organization. And then someone stays around five years and causes, <laughs> you know, makes the hole deeper and makes the transition harder and makes the, um, you know, makes the search more difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. It, it takes courage, and um, you know, unfortunately, that's the job of the board is to, you know, is to, is to in fact say, okay, you know what, this is not working out. We've got to, we've got to recycle the search. Yep, and I think that um, this all this goes all the way back to whether or not you have the right people on the board bus, right? It's, Absolutely. <laughs> this all stems back. All stems back. We work so hard to hire the right people. 
if nonprofits worked as hard on hiring the right people, uh, on, on hiring, quote, in air quotes, the right board members as they did with hiring the right staff, um, then the, or the organization, I like to think of nonprofits as um, like twin engine jets. And we spend a lot of time thinking about the staff engine, but not nearly enough time thinking about the board engine and how well it has to function, how diverse it has to be in order to govern, but also lead through these transitions. So I have about a, mil I have about a million questions, but I'm going to ask you one more um, which is during a transition, the board begins to own the organization in a way that it did not before, right? Right. It takes, right? And, and um, uh, so I see this a lot, right, during a, an interim where the board, if I can stay with my twin engine jet metaphor for a minute, think airplane, right, ends up, winds up down on the tarmac, kind of running and owning the organization, and then a new hire comes in. The board is accustomed to sort of being almost a working board. How do you get them? How do you get them to leave the tarmac and fly up and give run room to the new CEO? Because I, I, I especially, I think this is especially true when the transition is from a very long-standing executive director to a brand new one. Um, yeah, what's the advice on how a board transitions? from the transition to actually sort of giving the reins over to a new ED? Sure. Well, first of all, let's put a little context around this that, um, you know, every time there's a transition, uh, there's a, a learning process. There's a learning process for the executive, there's a learning process for the board, and there's a, there's a heightened need for uh, awareness and sometimes even vigilance uh, on the part of the board. That's human nature, right? And so I think, you know, having, having clear priorities Having uh, a mechanism to check in uh, and uh, is 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 you know can help forestall that. I also think for you know I see this a lot with uh, all volunteer organizations hiring their first executive, and so there's a lot of you know there's a lot of culture there, right? Yes. And and ownership is to have what I call a redistricting conversation, uh, where you're not just talking about, because oftentimes it's like they're, one of the mistakes those organizations make is they kind of back the dump truck up and you know put everything in the executive's lap um, and really have a redistrict, what I call a redistricting conversation, really where you're talking about what's going to change here and yeah. how will we know what that's changed and what are the, you know, and I also think it takes a real strong leadership from the board chair to hold the board accountable. Um, I use a slightly different metaphor with, uh, the, and I, I call, you know, I call it peering over the fence into the CEO's backyard. That's not uh -huh. an invitation to step into the yard, by the way. Um, Interesting. And yeah, a, a trespass, so to speak, <laughs> <laughs> or true intrude on the CEO's role. But you gotta, you know, you gotta understand the job um, before you can really make a, a good smart hire. So I think, you know, I think it's back to your point earlier that it really takes great leadership, and I think. Um, I think there's a real important critical role for a board chair uh, to help the board govern properly, properly during a time of transition. I think um, I do uh, workshops with uh, new board chairs and new, C new CEOs when one or both of them are new um, to really talk about how they um, can most effectively sort of co-pilot this, uh, this, this jet 
mm-hmm. and recognizing that, you know, there is overlap in responsibility, whether that's around board recruitment or fundraising, and that it's, you know, it's not cut and dry, and um, they have to learn how to create a real partnership. And I think, you know, it is m- my belief, and one of the things I talk about um, in one of the chapters of my book is, is that you got to, in the ideal world, you're looking for Fred and Ginger up there at the top, and you want to try to avoid, uh, like, Abbott and Costello. (laughs) Don, I think one of my favorite things about this conversation is I believe that we are kindred spirits. One is that you offer very actionable advice, and secondly, you um, (laughs) have a tendency to uh, share as if... um, it could be a PowerPoint presentation, and I've been <laughs> accused of this on many an occasion. So um, uh, I wish we had more time, but we do not. Um, Don, thank you so much. I appreciate your advice. I know that my listeners who are jumping off their ellipticals or getting to work will find what you had to say very valuable. So thank you for sharing your insights with us today. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for all the great work you're doing and putting a spotlight on this. Um, that's awesome. So, um, know that there will be some links, uh, uh, to some of Don's work, links to his books on my website, uh, and, uh, for even more practical, actionable, and occasionally funny advice, please don't hesitate to subscribe to my blog at www.joangary, with two R's, .com. Also, I would be remiss if I did not plug my own new book, which is due out in bookstores and online retailers on March 6th. I have learned, as a first-time author, that pre-orders are really important to get the word out to folks who find my advice to be valuable. So take a ride over to my book website at www.nonprofitsaremessy.com. You can pre-order the book from there, and we give you a little bit of an incentive if you pre-order. We're offering some pretty cool and very valuable bonuses. So we hope you'll consider that. And until next time, thank you so much for the work you do. Take care. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.